0: Good storytelling is good storytelling. And so I think sometimes, you know, you just have to remind people, but like, it's just a good story. This is an important story to do. This person's life is worth talking about. And it's an interesting story, whether they're upper middle class or middle class or working class or just poor, whoever they are, they have a backstory and they're missing that right there. Merits coverage, I think.
1: Hey, podcast family. Welcome to Motherhood in Black and White. I'm Kanji. I'm Tara. And Christmas came early for (laughs) me and Tara this week. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. Yes,
2: very exciting.
1: Now, you know, usually we wait to open our presents on Christmas Day for those of us that celebrate Christmas. But this year, Tara, we are bringing to our podcast family an early Christmas present for all of us. That's right. Now, last week on the podcast, we mentioned that we would love to have the... Executive producer of the Black and Missing documentary series. On last week, we talked about representation in the media. We talked about a couple of the episodes of Black and Missing that we had seen, as well as the documentary feature King Richard. The film King Richard. The film King Richard. That's right. With Will Smith. Yes. And we talked about how powerful Black and Missing was and the story that was being told and mentioned that we were trying to get the executive producer of Black and Missing to come on this show,
2: and... We did it.
1: Yes. I <laughs> Very exciting. I'm so excited, and huge shout-out to our producer, Mr. Joseph Salvia, for getting Soledad O'Brien to speak to us, because first and foremost, she's a mom. Yes. She's a working mom. That's what it says on her Twitter handle, and you can tell through everything that she does. Representation matters. Yes. So we're going to bring on Soledad O'Brien to talk with us and have a conversation about what she's been up to, about what she's going to be up to, and about the Black and Missing documentary series and why it is so important for all of us as parents, as people who are storytellers to be conscious of our own biases. So before we welcome Soledad O'Brien to the show, Tara, tell us a little bit about today's guest.
2: Yeah, so for anyone who may not be familiar or doesn't know her name in the forefront because she is an executive producer on so much, Soledad is an award-winning documentarian and she's a journalist who's reported everywhere from CNN to PBS. She's also CEO of Soledad O'Brien Productions. She has her own company and the mother of four. You know, her work for me is really about bringing a voice to the otherwise unseen. And I love that she focuses on creating necessary conversations about not just underlying issues in the world, but also bias and media coverage surrounding those topics. I'm very excited to have her on today.
1: And so it is my pleasure to introduce and bring to this conversation the Emmy Award-winning Soledad O'Brien. Soledad, welcome to the conversation. Hi there. Hi, it is such a pleasure and a privilege to have you with us today. We really wanted to take a moment to tell you how much we enjoyed you telling the story on Black and Missing. And we're curious, the Black and Missing documentary series, what is it that inspired you to tell the story?
0: I think I was really inspired by the work of the women who run the Black and Missing Foundation. As you know, uh, Natalie and Derek are sisters in law, and they have other jobs. I mean, one has worked in law enforcement, one is in publicity, PR. But I think that they saw a need to help figure out why there were so many people of color who were, one, not really being searched for when they went missing. And number two, why there were so many people who went missing and why the media didn't care that much. So when I heard them, they were honored at Black Girls Rock one year. And there were sort of small articles written about the work that they were doing, but we found what they were doing just fascinating. And so we thought it would be a great story. And we set out to see if they would be willing to do a doc with us. That's amazing. We really
2: enjoyed the show. It's an incredible piece of work. And I'm curious, one of the things they talk about, and one of the things that you guys discuss in the show is this media bias and specifically you know, missing white woman syndrome. And this lands right around the time when the Gabby Petito case is getting a lot of media. If you can just kind of talk about what that missing white woman syndrome is in media and why you think it's so prevalent.
0: Yeah, you know, I believe it was my girlfriend, Gwen Eiffel, who's passed away a few years now, who coined the phrase, that was the first time I had heard it when she talked about around, I think it was the Natalie Holloway case, this idea of missing white woman syndrome. And the syndrome is not just the way in which the media machine and law enforcement all sort of get into high gear when a young white woman is missing. And I think a good example of that is Natalie Holloway. I covered that case and her parents' plea and were constantly on television was remarkable. I mean, it broke your heart. Obviously, any parent who's going through something horrific, I mean, you can't help but think, oh my goodness, what has happened to this young woman. Absolutely. But I think she also was referring to the syndrome part of it was, if you'll remember, it was not just the parents and the media and law enforcement. It was sort of the nation started searching for this young woman. People were literally flying to Aruba to try to be helpful in her search. And it was amazing. I, I'm sure that Nellie Holloway's mother was grateful for people who did that. I mean, imagine and I think the thing that was so disturbing was this idea that this frantic sense of purpose that honestly every single missing person deserves, but that really only white women seem to get it, young, attractive white women, and that you really are missing that energy from the media, from law enforcement, and from the general public as a whole when it comes to a, an attractive young black woman missing or a person of color generally the difference, which we profile in the documentary, we really literally show what happens to a young Black woman who's missing right before Natalie Holloway. The difference is kind of staggering. Yeah,
1: you know, all of us are moms, Soledad. And one thing that I try to do in my life is put myself in the shoes of someone else. But one of the things that I think that's been so difficult for a lot of people to do, especially a lot of white women and white mothers, is put themselves in the position of, of children of color and some of the experiences that they have. The premise of this podcast, Soledad, is we understand that there are challenges in motherhood, but those challenges are not universal and that they're not identical because of different dimensions of diversity. So some white women and some of the white mothers that listen to our podcast want to know like, how can they... Um, address these biases that they see, or that, to counteract them when they show up in their lives.
0: Yeah, you know it's such a great question, and I think step one is actually thinking about that question at all is kind of amazing. <laughs> Self reflection is challenging, and very few people do it. And so, even the idea of like, "Wow, what could I be doing better?" is kind of a great question. Number one, number two, I would say you then have to to think about well, why. Why is this person getting coverage and this person not? And what can I do about it? And I actually think there's a ton of impact that you can have as an individual. One of the things, certainly in newsrooms, that uh, the newsroom cares about is who they think is their main audience. You'll see a good example from today is seeing that Fox News anchors were saying one thing on the day of the insurrection trying to get the insurrection to stop, trying to get the president to call out President Trump at the time to call up the insurrection, but going on air saying something else, right? Like Because you believe that your audience is this thing over here. Mm. And I found that in newsrooms, often the sense is like, you know, our audience is white, it's middle class, maybe upper middle class, you know, like that's who our audience is. And so would they care about this person missing I think I would argue, well, the answer is, of course they would. I mean, I care about a lot of things that aren't necessarily reflective of me personally. Uh, I care about Asian American women and men and elderly people being battered. Like, I think that's horrific. I'm not Asian American. I don't have an elderly grandparent, but it still utterly breaks my heart. And so I think there's a true power in being able to tell law enforcement and the news media, I'd like to see, I am a white woman. And I want you to know, I want to see this. How come we haven't covered this? And I think that those messages really, really work because again, people think they know their majority audience. I remember we did our documentary, Black in America, and there was a lot of concern, right? That we would do something called Black in America and it would drive away, frankly, the white audience. What we found was the white audience grew massively and the black audience grew massively because good storytelling is good storytelling. And so I think sometimes, you know, you just have to remind people, but like, it's just a good story. This is an important story to do. This person's life is worth talking about. And it's an interesting story, whether they're upper middle class or middle class or working class or just poor, whoever they are, they have a backstory and they're missing that right there. Merits coverage, I think.
2: No, I agree with you. Absolutely. I love your comment about, you know, we do have a voice. White women, I will speak for us here on this podcast. You're going speak for all the right, white that's women. Right. Yeah, that's right. I will speak for me personally. But yeah, so we do have a voice and we have a say. And outside of just making sure that we are consuming that media and talking about that media, are there other ways for us to speak directly to who's creating that sort of work and tell
0: them what we're looking for? Yeah, listen, I mean, social media is very powerful. Okay. You know, say at CNN, at NBC, at ABC, at (laughs) CBS, at PBS, at NPR. How come you're not covering such and such? Okay. I promise you when you add people, we're interested in this. And I'm surprised that you guys aren't doing this. You really can shame news organizations into doing what they need to do.
1: And there's such power in communities and we as moms have such power and we need to be better at mobilizing our sphere of influences, whatever they may be right in the school districts or in the communities to do that to to be better and be better storytellers. What is the one takeaway that you want people uh, who've seen the Black and Missing documentary series to either share with people in their communities, or if people haven't watched it yet, what what is it you want to tell them to do and to look for?
0: I think for people who haven't watched it, just understanding the disproportionate number of people of color who are missing. I mean, it's just, it's it's horrible. And it's unfair. Hmm. When people realize that more people care, they work harder. I mean, I've seen it a million times as a reporter, especially in law enforcement, when they realize that people are going to hold them accountable they actually, that's the gig, right? That's the whole reason you go before the cameras and you do all these pleas because you want law enforcement to respond. So I really think that there is, you know, there's a lot you can do. And again, it's really just reaching out and not acting like, well, this story is not for me. This story is for you. Just like you would care when Natalie Holloway is missing, you didn't know her. You should care about every young person is missing. Then there are very tangible things. You know, if you, if you call someone a runaway you can't do an Amber Alert for them immediately. You're you're no longer doing an Amber Alert. Well, and by the way, if you're 15 years old and you're and you've run off with someone you've met on the internet, I think you're probably still in terrible danger because often law enforcement would say, "Well, oh, they probably just ran away." Well, I still think that's that someone you would be searching for if that were your child, right? You'd be like, "Oh my gosh, maybe," but still, <laughs> you know, let's go find them. And so, I think that by just reclassifying people from being runaways, which changes how you're able to list them and how you're able to then notify the public about the fact that they're missing. Black and Missing has a website that they post people and they update everybody on who's missing, and what's happening. You know, I think for things that are happening in your own neighborhood, locally, you could say like, what are we doing about this person? She lives right, you know, across the way from us. Why don't we care about it? I think once you begin to understand the, the disproportionate access, you begin to get really mad. And also, I think you realize that, you know, it's good for everybody if you're able to stamp predators out, right? It's good for everybody. (laughs) You know, there's not a like, oh, well, this is, I don't need to care about those people because it's anything that is in your sphere is important to you. So I, I don't know why we always think like, this is not my issue. This is not my problem. Of course, it's everyone's problem.
1: Do you think that there is a tendency to remove ourselves from situations where our biases show up, right? I think that it's easy for us to say, it's not my problem because that wouldn't happen to me, or that's in their community. And there is that tribalism we revert back to, right?
0: Yeah, I'll give you a good example. So someone was saying to me the other day that I should list, which I haven't done yet, but we were doing it at a talk, that I should say, What are my pronouns? And I was sort of like, oh, well, sure, it's not really a thing for me, but I'm happy to. They said, but you have to understand when you make it a thing for you, you actually help everybody else for whom you're thinking it's a thing. And I was like, oh, shoot, that's a great point. Same thing with bathrooms. For example, I'd say, oh, it's so weird when they take a, a bathroom that's a single bathroom and they put like, this is a bathroom for everybody. I mean, of course it is. It's a single bathroom. And they're like, yeah, you don't really understand this. Right, the symbolism, the signage is important. Of course, it's a single. There's only one bathroom, <laughs> whoever's going to go in is going to go in. And I was like, great point. I'd never really thought of it that way. And so, it's one of those things that when you start saying, "Well, hey, my pronouns are," it's not for you. It's for somebody else because you're normalizing the idea that some people have different pronouns. If by doing that, I can help other people be normalized in what they're doing happy to do it.
1: And anyone that has used the bathroom on an airplane, you've used a gender neutral bathroom.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Of course. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it is, well, as you know, those things are never about what they're about. Absolutely. You're, You're
1: so wise, so wise. You know, you've been so very generous with your time. And we wanted to talk a little bit about you as a mom before we let you go. Curious to hear a little bit about your motherhood experience. And all of us now on this call, you, me and Tara, we're all working moms. Like what have you found to be the biggest challenge that you've had as a working mom of four?
0: Oh, my gosh, there's so many. How old are your guys' kids?
1: We both have adolescent boys. So, Tara's son is 11. 11. And my son is 12.
0: Oh, those are such great ages. <laughs> my boys are 17 and my girls are 20, almost 20, and 21. Wow. So, little tiny bit ahead of you. I have really enjoyed the whole experience. One thing I learned I was doing a panel the other day, and I think often parents, I know I do, will say things like, Oh, I'm surviving the teenage years. And someone said to me, but don't you like them? And I'm like, yeah, they're really great. They're like, so why do you frame it that way? And I realized, like, I was just being a goofball, right? I'm just trying to be funny and making a joke. And she's like, again, you realize when you say it like that, you make it out to be like it's hellacious, but you clearly don't think it's hellacious. So you should think about why you do that. And I was like, oh, that's actually a really good point when you describe something, even as you're joking, as like, oh, it's such a nightmare. No, I'm, I'm getting through the teenagers. My kids' teenagers have been amazing. They've been really fun. I enjoy them. I mean, you know, child rearing is hard work. So not every moment is a joy, but a lot of them are. And so I try to be more, um, more thoughtful about it. It's kind of how I think people used to sort of say like racist jokes or, you know, just thoughtlessly, right? Like they thought they were being funny. They just thought they were doing a thing. And you realize like, oh, you could not do that, actually. <laughs> you could just... You know, unless you really think teenagers are hellacious, which I don't, don't do it. Don't say it. Yeah. Because again, you know, you say that and you're joking with your friends, but you're on the phone. Your kids are right there listening to you. And it's not something that I believe. I've really enjoyed, I've really enjoyed it. But, you know, I think it's, it's just a lot. It's always going to be a lot. I have three sisters and two brothers. And I remember being so overwhelmed. And I was like, oh, my God, my body's a mess. I'm so overwhelmed. And my sister said, yep, you're exactly where you should be. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I'm not crazy. I'm where I should be. That was really, really helpful.
1: That's such a great point. And we tie that back to what you were talking about with media coverage. It's that language matters. Mm. And we need to be very careful about the words that we're using because they will resonate so deeply. And they'll resonate with our kids.
0: Well, if you don't mean them. Right. I mean, honestly, I think people should say whatever they want and say whatever they mean. But in that case, it was a joke, right? It was just one of those like stupid, thoughtless things that wasn't even true or accurate. Again, it's a lot about like thinking about the impact of, of, right, phrases and words and what you say and what you normalize and what you don't.
1: Yes. Right. Because it's very different when you refer to someone as a runaway Mm. instead of this is person that is has been kidnapped or missing, right? Right. Yeah. So that's a great point that you raise. We love that.
0: So some runaways, by the way, have run off with a the person they met on the internet who's actually a sex trafficker. Yeah. Mm. We wouldn't think of that as a runaway. We would think of that as a person who's been lured. And has now been kidnapped. Yeah, that was that
2: specific uh, story in your documentary was heartbreaking for me. I, I really felt for the mother who just was like, "No, my daughter is not. She did not run away. She has been coerced and taken from her family." It's, it was a really impactful story. I felt that you told it very well. Thank you. And the support that she received
1: from the Black community Uh um, with the Black media kind of elevating and raising her story has been so important. And you have continued, Soledad, to be a voice for and of marginalized communities. And for that, we are so, so thankful to have your voice in the media and have had it for so many years. Thank you.
0: Thank you.
2: So can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on next? I mean, this just came out and are you taking a breather? Are you already on the next thing?
0: That's like asking a person who just had a baby. Oh my God, your (laughs) baby! I know, right? (laughs) You guys thought about what you're having next? Yeah. Uh, We are in the middle of a handful of projects. We're about to start a radio show, interestingly, about finance. It's going to be on Edelman Radio and it's a show called Everyday Wealth because I was very interested. Actually, it started because... My parents, when they passed away now a couple of years ago, they really did, well, getting us all off to college. Well, they really did kind of everything really well, except their declining years. They just, and, and I screwed it up in that those are conversations to have at age 70, as opposed to what I was doing, which was having them at age 80, which is bad. No one's going to turn over their keys. No one's going to The idea of like where to live; those are all conversations you should have well before when you can have a real discussion with your parents. Versus what we did, which was I remember we had to move my mom and dad into a nursing home, like an assisted living facility, which I had to search for. I hadn't really thought about it. You know, should it be near me? Should it be near my? I mean, just you know, like this would have been a much better conversation to have with my parents when they were younger. Versus my dad was pretty good. My mom by then had dementia, and I remember just my mom crying when she left her apartment to go move into, you know, and she had dementia, so she wasn't really aware what was going on, but it was actually heartbreaking. Like, why would you not? It would literally be like springing it on your kid, right? Like, guess what? We're sending you to boarding school. Here it is. <laughs> you know, like no one would do that. But because I thought they had it down and organized, it just never occurred to me what a mess it was. you were very worried they're going to run out of money for what they were trying to do. It was okay. They did that well, but it could not have been. They just didn't outlive their money. But the real challenge was just was chaos. And it made it all much harder. I see it a little bit in my husband's side of the family. You know, his parents live in a super cute apartment in Providence, but they have an upstairs. And I'm like, you can't have an upstairs. When someone's sick, I see the exact same things that we went through. Like, we had the conversation and they said they have it under control. Mm-hmm, okay. <laughs> like my parents said the exact same thing, literally. I mean, I really do get it. So, you know, it's hard. So I wanted to be involved in this radio show because I was very interested in talking about not so much money, but like how do you live the life you want to live? And money helps you do that. And sometimes lack of money keeps you from doing that. I was very interested in understanding the black white wealth gaps in dealing with, you know, how people should be thinking about. You know, what does wealth mean to you? Like what kind of life do you want to lead? My husband and I recently moved out of our neighborhood in Chelsea. We lived there for 25 years. And we just moved to Harlem because I wanted to live in a neighborhood. I want to live in a community where the choices I make can benefit the people in the community. It was a very intentional maneuver. When I think about money and wealth, I think about that. Like, what can it do for me? How does it help me live the life that I want to lead? Not Well, if I put it in the Roth IRA over the next (laughs) blah, blah, blah. You know, I get it. I think that's interesting for some people. But for me, I'm much more like, what do I want to get out of life? What does it look like over the next couple of years? That's, for me, a much more interesting. Do you live with your parents or are are they not? Who's taking care of them? i never had a conversation with my parents. If one of you gets sick, who's taking care of you? What's the plan? What's the plan? We never had that. That was so incredibly stupid. That's going to be so
1: helpful. Everyday Wealth is the name of the show.
0: Mm-hmm. Everyday Wealth. And that's launching January 1st on Edelman Financial. And then we're doing a documentary about Rosa Parks. And that should air in February. Amazing. Um, we'll be looking forward to that as well. It's going to be great, and it's just—I really need the holidays to come so I can take a day off. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, we both, as we were reading your bio, getting ready for this, realized you might be the hardest-working woman we've had on the podcast to date. You are a busy, busy woman. All <laughs>
0: hard oh, working, but it is a little chaotic. I just want a break.
2: <laughs> Enjoy your break,
1: definitely. We are looking forward to listening to Everyday Wealth come in January, and all of us to pay attention to the new Rosa Parks documentary that will be out in February,
2: and look. For sharing that document with our sons, Tara. Absolutely, we will definitely make a point to watch that together. And knowing how busy you are, Soledad, thank you so much for sharing this time with us today. I mean, we are beyond grateful to get just a little bit of your day, and we want to make sure we give you some time back tonight so you can get started on some rest.
0: I'm right, sitting here with a big glass of wine.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Soladad, before you go, what
1: varietal of wine are you—a red or white wine drinker?
0: You know what's weird? And maybe everyone does this, but I go through phases. Okay. Like, I'll love white wine and then I'll be like, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> and then I'll only want a red wine. So right now, I'm in a white wine phase. But before that, for a while, I was in a fireball phase, mm, mid-pandemic. Wow. <laughs> I was in a gin and tonic phase in the summer because it's kind of like light and delicious. Uh-huh. I'm back in a white wine phase, Riesling. So super sweet, which everyone else is grossed out by because it's too sweet for them. But
1: (laughs) I love it. And we love you. And we love all of the work that you do in the communities and just being a voice and giving a voice to those who have been marginalized for far too long. You know, as a Black woman raising a Black son, I just want to say thank you.
0: Well, thank you. That's so kind of you. I really, I really, really am very grateful and I very much appreciate that. And I'm grateful
1: for you for calling in and spending this time and sharing space with us. You bet. Thank you so much.
0: Of course. Have a great night, you guys.
1: Thanks, you too, Soledad. Take care. Bye. There are certain conversations that you have in life that you will remember and that will stick with you forever. And that conversation we just had with Soledad O'Brien is one of them.
2: Yes, I know that you get frustrated because I think everyone is amazing and awesome, but this one deserves it. That was an incredible conversation. I'm very, very happy about that.
1: I know you fangirl over um, Zach Efron. (laughs) I will fangirl a little bit over Soledad O'Brien because she's someone who has used her platform for good. And she has told the stories of so many um, people that have gone silent, who have been the voiceless and, Um, for decades, you Mm -hmm. know, and so to have her on the show was just wonderful. And I loved some of the things that she was saying about how we in our communities can continue to get involved and to demand Demand. more Mm -hmm. from and to demand accountability from those who are um, providing us with local or national media, Mm -hmm. you know, to make sure that it is as free from bias as possible.
2: I appreciated that she had very actionable steps that We can take as a community to call out those companies, call out the purveyors of that art and tell them this matters to us. We care about these stories. We want to see them.
1: Yeah. So upcoming is the Rosa Parks documentary Mm -hmm. that she will be producing and will be airing in February, but out now is the Black and Missing documentary series on HBO and mm-hmm. HBO Max, That's right? correct. Yes,
2: it's streaming on HBO
1: Max. So if you have not checked that out, podcast family, please do. Please support Miss Soledad O'Brien, her production company, and the Black and Missing Foundation that she referenced. And if you need information or want information about the Black and Missing Foundation, the link will be in our show notes.
2: Yes, absolutely. We'll drop all that there. Make sure that you follow them. Um, they're doing incredible work. I started following them after watching the documentary, and it's it's been really impressive to see how hard they work to bring these people home. Yeah, let's bring some of these missing girls home.
1: Imagine what it must feel like and what it must be like to have a missing child. Something that you don't wish for anyone, but knowing that so many, too many people are experiencing that. Let's do our part
2: and let's help. Absolutely.
1: With that being said, we're going to sign off. Tara, guard your health podcast family, mental, physical, and spiritual. Take good care. Great.
0: Boom goes the dynamite, Joey Joe.